you have a copy of the Scripture with you, take it and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. We're starting out the new year, spending nine weeks in January and February thinking about the church. What is the church? What does it mean to be part of the church? Last week we talked about Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus, for the very first time in the New Testament, refers to the church the congregation, the assembly that he would build. This morning we're going to talk about what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ, and then you can see some of the topics that we're going to cover in the weeks to come. This morning, our passage is in the book of 1 Corinthians, and so I just want to briefly help us to find our bearings in this book, what's going on with Paul who wrote this book, what's going on with the church that he wrote to, how do we make sense of this particular chapter. We'll start with this. Paul planted the church in Corinth. He was the founding pastor or the planting pastor of this church. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18. This was a second missionary journey somewhere around 50 to 51 AD. Corinth was a remarkable city. It was a big city. It was a port city. You can visit it today and you can visit the ruins of the city that Paul uh, was in. You can see the square and the roads and some of the, the buildings as it was laid out in the first century. The map on the left is simply a map of Paul's first missionary journey. I know that you can't see all of that. All I'm trying to show you there is there's a black circle on the right. Paul started out in Antioch. He was at the church in Antioch when he went out on the first missionary journey. He was at that same church, the church in Antioch, when he went out on the second missionary journey. He thought he would just travel around in what we call Turkey, which at the time was the Roman province of Asia. But God redirected him. He crossed the Aegean Sea. He ended up in Philippi, and he went to Thessalonica, and he went to Berea, and he went to Athens, and then he dropped down all the way to Corinth before crossing back over the Aegean Sea. He went to Ephesus, and then he went to Jerusalem and ended back up in Antioch. That was Paul's second missionary journey where he planted this church in Corinth. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth for really a couple of reasons. I've given you one on your notes. In chapter 1 verse 11, Paul mentions that he has heard news about the church from Chloe's people. We don't know who Chloe is. We don't know who her people are. But if you've been around church any length of time, you know that churches have Chloe's, and they have people, and they like to tell everyone else what's going on in the church. And Chloe and her people knew what was happening in Corinth. It was not great. The church was not functioning well. It was not healthy. And so the news gets back to Paul, hey, this church that you planted in Corinth is struggling, and Paul is writing to instruct them about some of the things that have gone sideways. If your Bible is open, you can also look at chapter 7, verse 1. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So apparently, the church had also sent a letter to Paul. And in that letter, they had a number of questions. They had questions about marriage, and they had questions about the Lord's Supper, and they had questions about spiritual gifts. And starting in chapter 7, verse 1 through the end, Paul begins to say, Concerning this, concerning this, Concerning this, he's answering the questions that they had sent him in a letter. And by the time you get to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts. 
They had questions about spiritual gifts. What were they? How did they work? How should they think about spiritual gifts? And Paul begins to answer those questions in chapter 12. Now, some of you are very interested in the topic of spiritual gifts, and you may want to study this more on your own. And if that's you, I have a book to recommend to you. The book is written by a man named Tom Schreiner. He's a world-class New Testament scholar. He's written a very short book titled Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter. You can find this book online. You can find it in our library if you'd like to borrow a copy. He touches on all the boring parts of spiritual gifts, and he talks about all the controversial parts of spiritual gifts that people like to debate about, and I think it's a very, very helpful book. I'm recommending a book to you because our focus this morning is not going to be spiritual gifts. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts, but only as they relate to the broader question of what does it mean that the church is the body of Christ. That's the big idea of our passage, the big idea of this message. The church is the body of Christ. And as you read about this idea that the church is the body of Christ throughout the New Testament, you will find numerous other passages where the body of Christ is talked about, and in conjunction with that, spiritual gifts are discussed. So the two topics certainly belong together. Now, our passage is 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 12. So if you have a copy of the Scriptures, you can take it out. We'll put the words on the screen. You can follow along as I read. This is the Word of God from 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. And all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as He chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, 
Second, prophets. Third, teachers. Then, miracles, gifts of healing, helping, administration, or administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. It's the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the Scriptures, thankful for a guide, a rule, something that we can line our thoughts up with and our lives up with, and hopefully this morning our church up with. Father, we're grateful for this uh, idea that the church is the body of Christ, and we pray that you would open our minds and our hearts to what it might mean for us individually and what it might mean for us as a congregation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you at some point in your life have been enrolled in a class called Anatomy and Physiology? Okay, hands going up, lots of wry smiles, eye rolls, groans, sighs. If you're a nursing student or if you're a pre-med student or if you're an EMT in training or a fireman and you take an Anatomy and Physiology class, many times these people will say that this is one of the most difficult classes that they have ever had to take in all of their education. It is a difficult class because of the amount of information presented in the class. The human body is an amazing, miraculous machine. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And the purpose of an A and P class is to help you have a working understanding of how the body functions. Now, I'll admit that today in the 21st century, our doctors and our nurses and our EMTs are much more, much better educated than medical professionals were in the first century. We have discovered amazing things about the various systems of the body, the circulatory system and the skeletal system and the digestive system and uh, the lymphatic system and how all of these systems work together. You need all of them working together. And we've learned amazing things over the last 2,000 years. However, I want to say that if you went back in time to Paul's day, you would not find stupid people. They weren't dummies. Sometimes we think about ancient people as if they just weren't as smart as us. These were smart, bright, intelligent people, and they were smart enough to know that the body was an amazing thing, that the function of the body was a remarkable thing. And you could go back, and you can go back and read ancient sources, medical professionals who write books about the body or about parts of the body, and the Greek word that they use is the Greek word soma. In English, you might spell it S-O-M-A, the soma. Most of the time, when you read the New Testament, the word soma doesn't actually refer to the church as the body of Christ, although it's the same word. Most of the time, it refers to someone's body, their physical body. When this word is applied to the church, as Paul does here, he does it in Romans, He does it in Ephesians. He does it in Colossians. He's using a metaphor. Now, when we start to talk about metaphors, we're out of the world of medicine and we're into language arts, okay? So shift gears, leave your A&P class, go with me to sixth grade English. You know what a metaphor is, right? Let me give you a couple of metaphors. Life 
is a highway. Is it? Well, not really. I hope it's not like 42nd Street, at least, for you. But that's a metaphor, and it teaches you something. It helps you understand something about life. We've been on alternate schedule for the last couple of weeks. Chris mentioned that. So some of our younger kids may not be used to going down to the nursery. And so some of our nursery workers may leave in about an hour and say, the nursery was a zoo. Was it? Well, hopefully not a real zoo. But if they were to say that, you would understand that they're using a metaphor. It's a figure of speech intended to communicate something true. Jesus did this when he taught his disciples. He said to the disciples in John 10, I am the good shepherd. You understand, Jesus wasn't like handing out business cards. I'm a shepherd. Call me for all your shepherding needs. I can take care of your sheep. I can take care of your goats. That was not his profession by trade, and it's not what he was saying in real time. He's using a metaphor. He's pulling it from Psalm 23, where David said, the Lord is my shepherd. It's a metaphor. So Paul's using a metaphor here, and he's pulling that metaphor from the world of medicine. And he's saying to us, the church is the body of Christ. The soma of Christ. Same word that Paul would have used and that he used in other places to talk about somebody's physical body. He's taking something from the world of medicine. He's using this metaphor to teach us something important about who we are as the church. Now, our passage is 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to get there in a minute. I just quickly want to acknowledge some of the other passages where the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor. I don't intend to preach through Romans and Ephesians and Colossians. I just want to hit some of these ideas quickly. The first thing I want to say is this. If the church is the body, Jesus is the head. That's how the metaphor plays out, especially in Ephesians and Colossians. If you and I, the church, is the body, the body of Christ, Jesus is described as the head. He's the top man. Jesus bought the church with his blood. Jesus is the one who promised, Matthew 16, to build the church. He's the head. He's the source. He's the final authority of the church. I'm not. Your pastor or any pastor is not the head of any church. Neither is the member in the church who gives the most money. Not the head. Neither are the elders as a group, neither are the deacons as a group, neither are the Sunday school teachers collectively, neither is a board. Jesus is the head of the church. Now, we're not going to wade into the deepest of Trinitarian waters, but let me just say this. The Holy Spirit is not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the body. He's the head of the church. The job of the Holy Spirit, although it may sound very spiritual to talk about the Holy Spirit leading and directing and controlling a church, the job of the Holy Spirit, according to the New Testament, is actually to lift up Jesus and to glorify Jesus. So when you find yourself in a church that says, we're just following the Spirit, many times what they mean is, we're just pulling stuff out of thin air, we're blaming it on the Holy Spirit, and we're doing what we want to do. That's not how the Holy Spirit leads any church. The way the Holy Spirit would influence the people of God, and we'll talk about this more over the next few weeks, is to lift up Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. That's in Ephesians and Colossians. Secondly, I want to acknowledge this. It is the grace of God, only the grace of God, that brings us into the body of Christ. More clearly than any other book in the Bible, 
in the book of Romans, Paul describes how it is that a sinner can be saved. He starts in the early chapters, and his conclusion in Romans 3.23 is that all have sinned. Everyone. And he goes to great lengths in Romans 3 to make sure you know that that really means everyone. All of us have sinned. He continues in Romans 6.23 and he says the wages of your sin is death. The consequence that you deserve, that you have coming to you, your due as a sinner is death. The good news, according to Paul in Romans 5.8, is that God loves sinners and He shows His love for sinners and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died our death. He took our consequence. He took the wages that we had coming to us as sinful people. Paul says in Romans 9.18 that God will have mercy on whomever He chooses to have mercy. And then he follows it in Romans 10 and he says, Whoever would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It'll be evidence that God has shown mercy to you when you confess the truth about Jesus and you call on Him for salvation. Now, usually we stop the, quote, Roman road right there. I just want to acknowledge to you that if you keep going into Romans 12, 6, Paul actually says that the reason you're part of the body of Christ and the reason you have a spiritual gift is the grace of God. The same grace that saves sinners gifts saved sinners to be a blessing to the body and brings them in as part of the body of Christ. All of it is God's grace from beginning to end. The third thing I want to mention before we jump into our particular passage is this. Jesus cares about the health of His body. He cares about the health of His body. At the end of last year, we were working through the New Testament. We found ourselves in the book of Revelation. And our men in Emmanuel Institute and our women in women's Bible study have also been studying Revelation. You may be familiar with Revelation 2 and 3. Those chapters contain letters that Jesus sent through John to seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, what we call Turkey, the very place that Paul traveled through on his second missionary journey. And if you've read those letters, those seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, you know that Jesus does not pull any punches. He does not hold back when He's talking to these churches about how they're doing. In fact, He openly rebukes almost all of these churches, and He's very direct. And if you've read the letters, you know the kinds of things that He rebukes them for. He says, for example, you don't love each other. And if you don't fix that, I'm going to take your church away. He says to multiple churches, you have compromised when it comes to doctrine. You have compromised when it comes to morality. You're playing with sin and you're playing with false teaching. He says to one church, you are functionally useless, neither hot nor cold. He's very direct in his rebuke. Do you know what he does not rebuke those churches for? Being small. Some of them are small. 
They don't get a rebuke for that. That's not the issue. He doesn't rebuke them because they're not cool. He doesn't say to any of those churches, if you just had a more dynamic experience on Sunday morning, you would probably have more people coming to church. He's not worried about that. He doesn't rebuke them for having old, not that impressive, let's be honest, most church buildings are a little bit smelly. Buildings, much as you try to clean them, they're public buildings, it's a church. He doesn't rebuke them for that. Those aren't the things that he's concerned about. Those aren't the things that upset him. What he says is you don't love each other and you're playing around with false teaching and you're playing around with uh, sin and you're useless. And he rebukes them. In the United States of America, the wisdom of the world is obsessed with one thing when it comes to church. One thing and one thing only. Numerical growth. That's the metric by which churches are evaluated. If people are coming, you must be doing something right. If people are not coming, you must be doing something bad. We just make it a one-to-one. That's not the metric Jesus uses. He does care about numerical growth. He intends to build His church, one saved sinner at a time. He will build it. But He is much more concerned with health than numerical growth. And it would be a wonderful thing if churches in the United States, all of us collectively, would be as concerned about church health as we are worried about numerical growth. I would come into you Ephesians chapter 4. We don't have time to look at it, but it's a passage that talks about the body of Christ. It's a passage that talks about God gifting the church and why He gifts the church, why He gifts the body of Christ The reason is so that it would be healthy, so that it would be strong, so that it would not be tossed back and forth by every wind and wave of doctrine, but that it would be built up into the head who is Jesus. Now, let's talk about 1 Corinthians 12. What does 1 Corinthians 12 teach us about the church? I have three truths that I want you to see. The first is this, the body of Christ ought to be marked by unity, unity. That's the point of the first two verses, verse 12 and verse 13. The body is one. It has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. And look what he says in verse 13. In one spirit you are all baptized into one body. You have all received the same spirit. And then he says something fascinating. Jew and Gentile. You should be together in church. Slave and free, you should be together in church. The wisdom of the church growth movement, if you read their books, listen to their podcasts, go to their conferences, says today that your church, if you want your church to grow, and they mean numerically, your church has to have a target demo, target demographic. This is the wisdom of marketing lifted out of the business world and slapped on top of the church. That's all that it is. Who is your target demo? What color is their skin? What language do they speak? What subculture are they a part of? How much education do they have? What neighborhood do they live in? 
who is your target demo? Listen, if ever there were a time in church history when it made practical sense to have a target demographic, it's right here. Jew and Gentile. First Baptist Jewish, you go on the north side of Main Street. First Baptist Gentile, you go on the south side of Main Street. You can be friendly, but you won't be together, and it will be much better for everyone. First Baptist for the slaves, First Baptist for the free. We'll just split up according to human differences, and we'll do our own thing. That's the wisdom of the world. It will help you in terms of numerical growth. It's marketing. It's not rocket science. It won't help you that much when it comes to church health. Because as the body of Christ, we are called to unity. And I want you to notice Paul's argument in verse 13. Don't miss this. You have all been baptized by one Spirit into Christ. One Spirit. In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slave-free, all were made to drink of one Spirit. Listen carefully. A Spirit-filled church is a unified church. And people in the United States are very confused about this. What is a spirit-filled church? I think if you ask the average person in church this morning in the United States of America, church-going folks, not lost people, church-going people, what does a spirit-filled church look like? You know what a lot of them would say? Signs, wonders, miracles, healings, speaking in tongues, all of these things, that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. A lot of other people, do you know what they would say? They would talk about what happens on this stage while they're in a room like this. Were the lights dim enough? Was there enough fog but not so much fog that I was choking? Were the lasers really cool but they didn't blind me in the middle of the service? Did the band wear the right kind of clothing? Did the pastor have the right kind of hairstyle? How did I feel when I left the the room? Was it a good worship experience? You Pay attention. Churches today, they rarely talk about worship services. They talk about worship experiences. That tells you something about a church. It tells you that they're bought in. Whether they realize it or not, they may or may not, they bought into the wisdom of the world and they're marketing something. They want you to have an experience. It's all about the feeling that you walk away with. In the New Testament, you want to know what a spirit-filled church looks like? It looks like a unified church. A church that's unified. What does 1 Corinthians 12 teach us about the church? Number two, the body of Christ ought to celebrate its diversity. We ought to celebrate our diversity. This is tricky in the 21st century. It's tricky because the world in which you live has taken the word diversity and turned it into some sort of buzzword, uh, some sort of I'm in the club, some sort of mantra, some sort of mandate to justify and to impose all sorts of unbiblical diversity. So when you hear we're going to celebrate our diversity, you need to be very careful not to hear it with 21st century ears. What does it mean that we celebrate our diversity? Well, it does not mean that we celebrate diversity of belief. 
We talked about this last week. As the church, we are a confessional people. We don't gather together as a church and say, well, you want to believe this? Well, I'm going to believe this, and what would you like to believe? And we're all just going to sort of put up with each other's beliefs as if they're all equally valid. That's not the kind of diversity we're talking about. Being a confessional people means that we say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we submit our beliefs to what the Bible says, not what we want to believe. We're not talking about diversity of belief. We're also not talking about diversity of morals or ethics or lifestyle. Those things are not up for negotiation or debate. The Bible describes what God's law for His people is. He describes God's will for people who follow Jesus Christ. You and I don't get to argue and debate about that except argue and debating what does the Bible say is God's will for us in terms of belief and lifestyle. That's the question. So we're not talking about diversity of belief. We're not talking about diversity of lifestyle. We're talking about diversity of people. Take your target demographic and throw it out the window. Who's the target demo for Emmanuel Baptist Church? Sinners. That's the demo. That's the target audience. If you fall into that category, we want to reach you. If you're a sinner, you've got a place here. The gospel's for you. Jesus can save you. Jesus can bring you into the body. And Jesus can use you for the good of the body. Diversity of backgrounds, ethnicity, education, stage of life, socioeconomic status, and certainly diversity in giftedness. Is that not Paul's point as he lists out these various gifts? He makes these questions at the end of chapter 12 where he asks these questions. Are all apostles? It's a leading question. In Greek, the answer is implied in the way that he asks it. The answer is no. Not all are apostles. No. Are all prophets? No, they're not. Do all have this gift or that gift? No, they don't. Can you imagine a church? You don't want to do this, but do it for a minute. Can you imagine a a church of only preachers? It's okay to chuckle at that or to shudder or to have a, a chill up your spine. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? All preachers? What about a church where everyone thought that they ought to stand on this platform and sing the songs on Sunday morning? That'd be a little bit awkward. All of us up here singing to chairs. Not that long ago, I preached to chairs. I just tell you, it's awkward. It's ridiculous. Can you imagine a a church filled with people who love to stack chairs and wipe tables off? We'd be clean. That's about it. Who would do the teaching? Who would do the evangelism? Who would make the hospital visits? I just want to stack chairs. We just all want to stack chairs. Can you imagine a church filled with people who want to serve in the kitchen? You can talk to some of our kitchen people. They're sitting right back over here. This is the kitchen section, right over there against the wall. We've got some very faithful people who serve in the kitchen. But I know from experience, we don't need too many. You don't need too many cooks in the kitchen, do you? It goes haywire real quick. God knows what He's doing. So within a church, He 
gives some teachers and he gives some chair stackers and he gives some kitchen help and he gives some evangelists and he gives some givers and he gives some people with faith. He gives some people who can administer things and organize things, some people who can work in the nursery, some people who can greet at the front door. He gives all sorts of people, some people who can sing up here, some people who can stand out there and sing. It's a variety of gifts. It's a diversity of gifts and we need it. Now, one quick point, just a Really a side point, I want to acknowledge it because it's on the mind of some of you. At the end of this passage that we read, starting in verse 28, he talks about apostles, prophets, miracles, healings, and tongues. So I just want to say a quick word about some of those gifts. It's not the emphasis of what we're dealing with this morning, but I want to acknowledge it. The gifts of apostle and prophet were foundational gifts in the establishment of the church. That's not your pastor's opinion. That's the Bible's direct teaching. Not everyone, in fact, many people today refuse to acknowledge this. And they talk about apostles and prophets being active in the church today. I'm just telling you, Ephesians 2 is clear that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the church, and the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church, and you only need one cornerstone, and you only need one foundation. And in the New Testament and in early church history, they did not try to replace the apostles. They did not try to replace this office of prophet. These were foundational gifts, foundational offices in the church. And Paul talks in one place, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, about the gifts given to verify an apostle or a prophet. How would you know if somebody was an apostle or prophet? Well, there were gifts associated with that, sign gifts. And I'm telling you that with those offices no longer functional in the church, I believe the Bible is suggesting to us that those gifts that verify those offices are also not operational. Now, some of you are panicking, and you're saying, our pastor does not believe in miracles. Of course I believe in miracles. God does miracles all the time. Some of you are saying, Well, our pastor just said he doesn't believe in healing. God can't heal people. That's not what I said. God can certainly heal people. He heals people all of the time. It's his prerogative to do that. He may or may not use us as part of that process. What I'm saying to you is that these offices, these gifts of apostle and prophet were foundational, and the gifts associated with verifying those offices have ceased with the office. If you want to read more about this, I would suggest to you Tom Schreiner's book on spiritual gifts. I think it's a very cogent argument on why you ought to think in these terms when it comes to spiritual gifts. One last truth from the passage that is really not debatable is this. The body of Christ ought to recognize its dependency. We're dependent people. We ought to pursue unity. We ought to celebrate diversity. And we ought to recognize our dependency. In just a minute, we're going to sing about the fact that we're dependent on God for breath. Every breath, we're dependent on Him. For life, for breath, for health. We're dependent on Him for wisdom. We're dependent on Him for work, for resources, material blessings. Every good gift comes from God. We are dependent on Him. Earlier, we sang about a king who needs nothing. God is not dependent. He is independent. We don't pump Him up with our singing. 
we don't lift him up with our faith or our prayers. He's independent. We're dependent. We're dependent people. We are dependent on the Father who loved us when we were sinners. We're dependent on the Son who died for us while we were still sinners. And we're dependent on the Spirit who opens our heart to the truth of the gospel. We are dependent on Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for life, for everything, for salvation. That's true. It's not the point in 1 Corinthians 12. The point in 1 Corinthians 12 is actually more humbling for you and me than that. Because you're here at a worship service. Presumably, you have some interest in spiritual things or God. It's probably not that hard for me to convince you that you're dependent on God. This is the point of the passage. You are actually dependent on everyone else in this room. It's not just you and God. No Christian is a a faithful Christian all by themselves. When you're part of the body of Christ, you are dependent on all the other parts of the body. Paul talks in this passage about the eye needing the hand and the head needing the feet and those parts that are less honorable really are important. If you don't believe him, just wake up in the middle of the night and kick your pinky toe on the edge of your bed. You haven't thought about your pinky toe until you do that, and then you realize, I need it. And it's not working right at this moment, and I need it to work right. It's a problem. Every part. What Paul's saying is that every part of the body is essential. The church is the body. Every part of the body is essential. Every part of the church is essential. Notice what he says in verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member of a church suffers, there ought to be a sense in which the whole church suffers. One member is grieving, is hurting, experiencing loss. It ought to affect all of us. Now, understand that there's enough of us here that you don't really know everyone and Someone may be in a different Sunday school class. You don't cross paths with them. Maybe they're an early service person. You're a late service person. You don't see them a lot. I understand that. But when you're part of a church body, the body of Christ, there ought to be a real sense in which those who suffer affect you. Their suffering becomes your suffering in a sense. And notice what else he said. Verse 26, if one member is honored, the rest grumble that they weren't honored. There's no grumbling when one part of the body is honored because it's still one body. If one part of the body is honored, we celebrate that. We rejoice in that. We give thanks for that. We don't begrudge them of that. We're not jealous of them for that. We don't wish that we would have that experience, we rejoice with them. We suffer with them. We rejoice with them. That's what it means to be part of a body. Any first-year A.M.P. student can tell you, any of them. You can get a passing grade in A.M.P. with a 75. But if 75% of your bodily systems are working and 25% are not, you've got a problem. It's a big problem. So it is with the body. Every member, every part is essential.
we ought to pursue unity. We ought to celebrate our diversity in the biblical sense of the term. And we recognize that we're dependent. We're dependent on God, but we're also dependent on each other. Let's pray.